But can we mute the mics and stuff, please?
Okay, folks, I'll encourage you to take a seat. And we're going to get stuck into the word with Mr. Lockie Hodgson. We're very excited. <laughs> we're very excited. <laughs> so, for those of you who don't know Lockie, Lockie has grown up here in Bourbon. Sure have. Um, your, do you like to state your age? You're between 20 and 30? 23. 23. There we go. Now, Lockie uh, is currently at uni, and I'll get you just to explain a bit that for those who don't know you very well, but Lockie, for many of us in the church, is like family. We've seen him grow up, we've seen him go to school, we've seen him go through uni, and uh, to be this amazing, great man. Oh, thank you. Son of Jeff and Kath, grandson, Marg and Mel, and great, great big brother. <laughs> it's just too much. Yeah, it's pretty big, pretty big. So, look, tell us what you're doing at uni so we can come into the picture of where you're at. Yeah, for sure. So, currently, I am working with the Evangelical Students Group at Adelaide Uni. So, doing a, what we call a ministry apprenticeship. Uh, so, it's a two-year program where I just go in and get trained in ministry kind of thing, but also um, can be, be a resource to the students that are going through uni, the Christian students that are going through uni, uh, helping them to grow in their knowledge and their love for Jesus, but also giving them some resources and some training so that they can best uh, be a light on campus to those who don't yet know Jesus. Um, so yeah, just trying to help them reach the 35,000 uni students on North Terrace with the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that, so what were you going to study before you went to, to this? So originally I was going to study aerospace engineering. That's right. And then I decided in my gap year to study languages and linguistics instead and finished that in 2019, had a year off and then started my ministry apprenticeship this year. That is an amazing path of God and an amazing way to serve God, just yeah. to step back and go, I'm giving myself. We thank you for that. That is big. It's, it's a, such a privilege. Yeah. Such a privilege. Yeah. Amen. Well, I'll leave you to it, Lockie. Thank you for bringing us the word this morning. Thank you very much. And we look forward to hearing more. Thank Beautiful. You. All right, good morning, everyone. So as we've just heard, my name's Lockie, uh, and it's always such a joy and a privilege to come back here uh, to see all your smiling faces again. Well, maybe not at the moment with masks on, but I imagine all your smiling faces here. As we just heard, I'm currently doing an internship kind of thing with evangelical students at uni. About a year through, which is crazy, uh, but it's been a real blessing. And just recently, I've finished writing uh, Bible studies for Term 4. And the Bible studies that we're doing are on 1 and 2 Kings, which is a hoot. Uh, it's been a blast getting into them. Uh, there's some really weird and wacky stuff that goes on in the history of ancient Israel. Uh, we see people devoured by lions, fire falling from the sky, prophets getting slapped struck by weapons by their own command, uh, but we also see how God's at work through all of this in the lives of his people, and how all of this points to Jesus. So if you haven't read the books of Kings lately, totally recommend that you do it, uh, but just this morning I'd love to share with you one of these awesome stories that we find in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. So would you join with me as we pray, and then we will read 1 Kings 17 together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise to speak to us through your word. And we pray that you would do so this morning. We pray that you would be at work in our hearts, allowing us to hear the message you're trying to tell us uh, through this story that's thousands of years old. Uh, but we pray that it would be become true and applicable to us today. Uh, we 
We ask you to speak and we put ourselves in your hands. Amen. All right, so let's read 1 Kings 17. Should be up on the screen there. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a a little water in a jar, so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home, make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. And the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, Have you brought tragedy even on this widow who I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of Lord of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. A little bit weird and wacky, right? So I just want to ask you for a moment as we consider that to think about where our world tells us to turn when we want to look for life. Where are we encouraged to go when our lives seem to have no purpose, no meaning? We're told to turn inwards, to listen to our hearts, to be true to ourselves. You do you, and this will bring you life. Or maybe we're told to turn outwards, 
Focus on other people. Be loving and kind. Do good deeds and good things will come back to you. Or maybe the world just distracts us too much that we don't even think about this. We're soothed into blissful ignorance by the near limitless amount of TV shows, movies, novels, video games, latest celebrity scandals. We don't even think to ask ourselves this question. What brings me life? What satisfies my desire for meaning and purpose? Today, I want to put it to you that there is only one thing that can truly bring us life. That one thing is the word of the Lord. In looking at our passage today, we're going to see three ways that the word of the Lord brings life. Firstly, the word of the Lord brings life by providing for us. Secondly, the word of the Lord brings life not only for us. And thirdly, the word of the Lord brings life by conquering death. So let's get into it. Oh, sorry, there we go. First, the word of the life, word of the Lord brings life by providing for us. So one of the first things we notice when we're reading through this passage is God is pictured here as a provider. In the first few verses, we see him provide for his prophet, but then later on we see him provide through his prophet. A key point to keep in mind here is that in the Old Testament, prophets were seen as embodiments, channels, vessels for the word of the Lord. In the prophetic books of the Old Testament, we very, very often see the refrain, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. We can almost see Elijah here as an embodiment of the word of the Lord, the things that he says and the things that he does as being done by the Lord, but through him. So as we just think about this chapter that we just read, how do we see God provide? Well, first in verse four, we see God that, that God directs ravens to provide food for Elijah while he's out hiding in the wilderness. In verse 14, Elijah promises that the Lord will provide for this widow, that her flour and her oil will not be used up until God provides another way for her to get food, until he provides rain that signals the end of the drought. And finally, in verse 22, we see that the Lord provides the son of the widow with new life. He provides this mother with a son who will be able to provide for her in the future. I don't know about you all, but as I read this chapter, I'm reminded again and again of other places in the Bible where God provides for his people. The birds that bring meat and bread to Elijah remind me of when God provided bird meat, quail, and manna in the desert for his people after the Exodus. The small amounts of oil and flour that continue to provide remind me of the few loaves of bread and the couple of fish that Jesus used to feed 5,000 hungry people that had come to listen to him teach. We see that God has a track record, both in the Old and New Testaments, of providing for his people's physical needs. Even the early church history that we read in Acts, we see that God continues to provide through his, for his people, but not normally in such miraculous ways. In chapter 4 of Acts, Luke writes, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. 
from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. And this is what it seems is how God normally provides for his people nowadays. Not as much through miraculous events of unlimited bags of flour and oil, though that would be pretty cool, but through the generosity and through the unity of his people, of his church. And that's, that's the case today. There are thousands of missionaries all over the world that are only able to continue their work of spreading the gospel because of the generous people in church who provide for them financially. My university ministry that I'm doing is only able to keep serving our Christian uni students, reaching our campuses, because God is providing for our needs through the church. God does recognize that we, as humans, as physical beings, have physical bodies to keep these physical bodies running. Our physical needs must be provided for. We need shelter, protection, food, water, relationships. And God knows this. He provides these things for us through the generosity of his church. But these things shouldn't be ends in and of themselves. We do have a greater mission to glorify God and to make his name known. But in order to do that, we need these needs met. It's a bit like your mobile phone, right? The ultimate goal of your phone isn't to sit on your bedside table charging 24-7. The goal of a phone is communication, allowing you to talk to people that are a little bit further separated from you. And today, phones have a, a lot of other roles too, but just sitting there charging isn't one of them. But a phone couldn't do the things that it's meant to do unless it has spent time sitting there charging. It's important that your phone's charged, but it's not the ultimate goal. God provides for our physical needs in a similar way. It's important that they're met in order that we can continue living and serving God, but pursuing these things for themselves should never be something that we do. We should be focusing on our larger mission. What is this mission? Well, we see part of it in the next section. The word of the Lord brings life not only for us, I want to tell you that when we read the passage before, we missed something. Something very important. Very, very important. Any ideas? This thing that I'm talking about would have stuck out like a sore thumb to the original audience, and yet we just so easily skip over it. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about place names, geographical locations. Yay! And I see you all there sitting there a bit disappointed, hoping that it was going to be something big and exciting. But let me tell you, this plays a very important role in our story. So I'm guessing most of you are like me. You don't have a perfect understanding of ancient Near Eastern geography. You're not perfectly able to recreate a map of the area, drawing in every little town, every little city, knowing your Ashkelons from your Ashdods, your Suckets from your Shechems. Maybe some of you can do that. I, I applaud you for it. But for the rest of us, it's so easy when we're reading through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, to just ignore the geographical details, to not bother turning to the map in the back of your Bible, having a quick search on Google. 
Sometimes we get away with it. But more often than not, we miss something by doing that. With this story, if we don't know where the places are that God sends Elijah, we miss a huge part of the story. So the two main places that we're concerned with in this chapter are the Kerith Ravine and Zarephath. Now, where are they? On screen is a map that I prepared earlier. Hopefully you can see the little red crosses and, yep, on the, on the little map. So what's, too, what's so surprising about these two places? Well, they're outside of the kingdom of Israel, right? God is sending his prophet away from the promised land to the surrounding nations, to a Gentile in Zarephath. This is crazy. Usually, God's prophets are sent to God's own people, the Israelites, in the kingdom of Israel to call them back to him. But not in this story, no. Elijah comes on the scene and the first thing that God does with him, he sends him out of the promised land to just go and hide out in a ravine across the Jordan, then to head into a Gentile city with their weird customs and their false gods. Why would God do something like this? Well, we see throughout the whole Bible, from beginning to the end, that God is not just the God of the Israelites. He's the God of the universe, the God of the whole world, of all people. We see in Genesis 12, when God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on the earth will be blessed by you. God chose Abraham and prospered him, not only for his sake and his family's sake, not that God might be his God only, but that through him, all the nations would be blessed with the knowledge of God. We see the same thing in Exodus 19. God speaks to Moses and he says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God will prosper the Israelites so they can be a kingdom of priests. And what do priests do? Well, they're the mediators between God and man. God chose Israel out of the nations, so that they then could be the ones who blessed the nations around them, connected those nations around them to the one true God. And we see this pattern in the New Testament too. Paul says that the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. In Acts, before he ascends to heaven, Jesus says that the disciples will be his witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God starts with Israel. His MO seems pretty clear. He chooses Israel out of the nations, so that through Israel, other people might come to know him. But what happens when the Israelites mess up and don't do this well? Or don't do this at all? Does this ruin God's plan? Of course not. When the Israelites have rejected him, 
as we see in this story, God sends this prophet away from his people, out of the promised land, to a Gentile. And this would have been a huge slap in the face to the Israelites hearing this. It's like God saying, hey, I've given you absolutely everything you could ever desire. I've given you land, prosperity, victory in battle, and the one job I had for you, you failed to do. So I'm going to go do it myself. It's kind of like the relationship between a master and an apprentice. So imagine for a second, you own a big farm and you've hired someone to work on your farm. For the past few weeks, few months, you've been teaching them and training them, giving them the skills they need to do their job well. And today you have a very important job. You have to rebuild a broken fence so that the livestock you have arriving tomorrow can't run away. And so you give your apprentice some help and tips on digging new holes for the fence posts. Then you let him work for a while. And when you come back, you see he hasn't taken your advice or your tips. And the holes are in the wrong spot and the fence is going to be all crooked. So you fill in the holes and you get him to try again. And he still doesn't listen to you. So you try again. And again, maybe you don't have that much patience. But eventually, because of the importance of this job, because the sheep are coming tomorrow, you're probably going to go and dig those holes yourself, right? And through all of this, we see God's care and his desire that not only his people, not only the Israelites might know him and serve him, but that the whole world and all the nations would come to recognize him as their God. And when Israel doesn't do a good job of this, he still makes sure it makes sure it happens. This is the same care and desire that we see in Jesus when he commands his apostles to go and make disciples of all nations. It's why in John's revelation of heaven at the end of the Bible, we see people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues worshiping Jesus together. But how do we fit into that? Well, in 1 Peter, Peter takes this priesthood language that God applied to the Israelites back in Exodus, and he now broadens the scope and applies it to all believers. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Can you hear the echoes of that Exodus passage in there? Peter says that it's us believers whom God has called and saved. It's now our task to share God with those around us, with those who don't know him yet. It's our job to share this life-bringing message of the gospel. That because, now, because of Jesus, now it is possible to have a relationship with our God and our Creator. It's our job to bring this message to those who don't know it yet. So what might this look like for you? Maybe you can think of some friends, some family, who are looking for life in places that, in the end, are just going to disappoint them. Maybe you can be praying for opportunities to show them the true life that you have found, they, that they too might one day find this true life in relationship with God.
Or maybe, like Elijah, this is a call out of your homeland to a different place, somewhere with a strange language, strange customs and culture, strange gods, and to share with the people living there where they can find true life and true hope. Trusting that God desires to see all people come to faith in Him and that He can and will work through you so that people might respond and proclaim like the widow does at the end. Now I know that the word of God is the truth. Finally, we see that the word of the Lord brings life by conquering death. And we see this especially in the last little section of our passage for today. So I'll read it to you again. It's up on the screen, probably a little bit small, but that's okay. So sometime later, the woman who owned the house became, the, sorry, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Here we see so very clearly that the word of the Lord embodied by Elijah triumphs over death, very literally here, by bringing the widow's son back to life after he died. What an incredible miracle that is. But I also like to point out that there are quite a few other references to death in this passage, although none of them are quite as obvious as this one. But in each circumstance, God brings about life in a place of death. So if we start from the beginning, in verse 1, we see that Elijah proclaims a drought. And I'm sure many of you would know how much of a death sentence that can be. We've seen in recent years what it's like when drought strikes, how horrible it can be, even in the 21st century in a prosperous land like Australia. But just imagine 3,000 years ago, there's no food land just around the corner to go and buy your groceries at. No road trains bringing, bringing hay for your cattle and sheep from halfway across the country. For them, drought is a death sentence. But see how Elijah ends this proclamation? He says, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except by my word. The word of God, spoken through Elijah, is able to bring this life-giving rain that is so precious in the time of drought and this threat of death. And as we saw in the first section, Elijah is in the wilderness without food. The threat of starving is hanging over him. But no, God provides ravens to bring him bread and meat to sustain him. Again, we see the threat of death overcome by the word of the Lord. And then we meet a widow. What's a widow? 
someone whose husband has died. And this widow is on the brink of starvation and she'll soon die. But behold, Elijah comes and he speaks the word of the Lord, saying that neither the flour nor the oil will be used up. Again, death is defeated. And this idea of the word of the Lord defeating death is woven throughout this whole story, throughout the whole Bible from beginning to end, both in the Old Testament and the New. And strangely enough, we see a very, very similar story with Jesus when he raises a widow's son in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. So let's have a little squiz at that. Again, I'll read it out for us. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier that they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Can we see the similarities between these two stories? There's a widow that the man of God meets at the town gate. Her only son has died. And then this man of God comes and by the word of the Lord raises this boy back to life. He then gives him to his mother and there's an amazed response. And it seems like Jesus is associating himself with Elijah here. He's taking on this mantle of being a great prophet, like the crowds exclaim when they see his miracle. He's reminding the crowds that the response of the widow to Elijah, after all the miracles in 1 Kings 17, is the same response that this crowd should have to him. Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. He's claiming, like Elijah, to speak the word of the Lord. So the people should listen up. Little do they know that Jesus is the word of the Lord, like John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Then a bit later in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. In 1 Kings, we see how the word of the Lord, working through Elijah, was able to conquer many threats of physical danger and of possible death. But now, with Jesus, we see that he came not only to provide for physical needs, he raised people from the dead, he fed the 5,000, but ultimately, he came to conquer death, spiritual death, once and for all. Through his work on the cross, Jesus broke the power of sin and death, allowing us to have new life in relationship with God, our creator, both now and for all eternity. Paul writes about this total victory of Jesus, who is the word of the Lord over sin and death in 2 Corinthians. He says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of the sin is the law, but thanks be to God, 
He gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this amazing? Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we no longer need to fear death. We look at death and we see it's on its last legs. We can look forward past the death of this physical body to a time where we're promised that death will be no more. A time that we will live together with God for all eternity, praising Him for how He has brought us life. And so to wrap up today, if we believe, like the author of 1 Kings does, that the Word of God brings us life by providing for us, that it brings life not only to us, but to others too, and that the Word of God brings life eternally and forever by conquering death. And if we believe that this Word of God that was once spoken through prophets like Elijah, then revealed in Jesus, who is the Word of God, and that Jesus is revealed to us today in the pages of Scripture, which is also the Word of God, if we believe all of this, then can I challenge us, can I exhort us to be spending more time interacting with this Word? Let's spend more time encountering God in His Scripture. Let's spend more time encountering Jesus in prayer. Let's turn first to Him when we are struggling because He alone brings us true life. Can I also challenge you guys to think about how you might be involved in helping others hear this life bringing word of the Lord. Maybe it's being part of that generous church that God uses to provide for his people. Maybe it's heading out into the nations with the good news. Maybe it's catching up with a friend for a coffee and showing them the love of God. In the end, I hope and I pray that we are all able to confess this like David did in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. for that beautiful word and what a great reminder it is that we are community and uh, that we are the hands of God in that community at times we're going to close um, our sermon with eagle's wings haven't done it for a while have we but let's stand and sing and just refresh that memory of Lockie's word this morning hopefully Mm -hmm.